Good morning, everybody. Glad you're here. Um, I want to take a moment and uh, I just want to pray. Uh, I know Malia prayed for us and that was beautiful just speaking to our Savior. But, you know, we're back in the midst of kind of this COVID panic and um, people going nuts and what's going to happen. And um, I just want to take some time. You know, we just sang about the great I am. We just <laughs> sang about like he's our living hope that when death happens, we're not scared, we're, we're confident, you know, and, and it's easy to sing those songs. It's another thing to live in the midst of the reality of those songs, right? And scripture is, calls us to understand the reality of our world. That's what we've been walking through in the life of David. Um, and I, I just want to take a moment and pray and, and trust the Lord as we kind of go into his word. So pray with me. Father, thank you for this morning. Lord, I thank you that while we wonder what's happening we're looking for people to tell us what, what's happening, and we don't know if we're getting the truth. We don't know what's happening. I thank you that, that you've told us. You've given us the full story. It may not be the story we want. It may not be the story that we like, but it's the truth. And that you've laid it out for us. You've preserved your word miraculously. It's been written by multiple authors, inspired and guided by the Holy Spirit on multiple continents, and cultures. There's no book like it in history, and it's true because it speaks of who you are because you are the one true God. You are Yahweh who saves, Jesus, the Messiah and Savior, Christ. And so we thank you this morning. We pray that you'd put our hearts at ease, put a, put a smile, a joy in our heart, and a peace that passes the understanding of our world today. And Lord, if we face the reality of whatever happens and comes next, I pray that you would lead, guide, and direct our hearts. And so this morning, I pray that we would find our loyalty in you, not in anything else, that we would look at the loyalties that we have to our selfishness, to the things of this world, and we would put those aside secondary to being fully focused on you and telling people about you. Give us your word this morning. Help us to hear through the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray in your name. Amen. We are in 1 Chronicles and 2 Samuel. Uh, our series has been titled, What Happened, Tell Me. And uh, this is kind of where we've been. Um, the question is, why do you want to know what happened? And why do you want to be told? You know, most people want to rewrite history so they can manipulate it. They want to take history and they want to twist it or fit it to whatever it is that fits what they want. They don't really want the true history, right? They want a history that's devoid of the things they don't like and, and really highlights the things that they do like. And so often we read the Bible that way. We skip over the things we don't like, like genealogies. How many of you have really taken the time to read through a genealogy, like pronounce their names right? like really get to know who these characters are. No, we skip over it because, well, it's just not important until you're the one that's been forgotten. Then all of a sudden it's important and my great-great-grandchildren know who I am, right? I, I would like for them to know that I followed God. And so, so it's so easy for us to pull away instead of engage God's word and say, okay, Lord, I really want to know what happened. I want you to speak to me. I want to know this. And the reality is we've been trying to twist scripture forever. I mean, for so long, 
the only reason you have a Bible is because somebody decided they didn't want Scripture twisted anymore and they were going to translate it into languages so the common people could read it and the religious leaders couldn't twist it anymore to make people do things the Bible didn't say to do. And they died. They were burned at the stake. They were hung. Because they wanted us to have God's word. They wanted us to know what happened and they wanted God to speak so that we could hear him. And people gave their lives so that you can have what's in your hand. It's a big deal. And so we have to pause for a moment because I think this morning, what I want us to look at, and this is critical, and the question I want you to ask is this, what are you loyal to? What are you loyal to? Like where, where are your real loyalties? If somebody looked at your bank account, your calendar, looked at your Facebook, your social media, your Twitter, all that stuff, if, if they looked at your, went through your house, looked at the books you had on the shelf, if they really looked at your life, what would people say you're loyal to? Because that's a critical question. Because so often we portray this loyalty, but then when it really boils it down, we're not really loyal. Let me ask you this. Who are you loyal to? Let me ask you. If our president said he was a believer, did some things early in his life that showed that he was a believer and maybe God was with him, but then he had multiple wives or married multiple women, maybe divorced and remarried, he seemed to play favorites among his family, he used his work time and his position to have sex in the White House, he covered it up by essentially ordering the lady's husband dead in the military, he was confronted and instead of publicly saying, I didn't do it, he publicly confessed and repented to the nation. That never happens, right? Then he made sure it was written down so everybody knew all the wrong stuff he did so that they wouldn't mess up too. Then he raised awful kids. He was in direct violation of Scripture, didn't do what Deuteronomy 17 was commanded of the king to do to keep a copy next to him so he wouldn't disobey God. Whose side would you be on? when the election came up next November. You voting for that guy? You loyal to him? Oh, no, 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 no. Well, what about his policies? What about his heart? What about who he is? What is he trying to do that's best to glorify God and glorify people? Have you even asked that question? Or do you just look at all the sin and look at all the problems and dismiss it? Now, I'm, not, I'm talking about King David. None of us would vote for King David in four years. Let's just be honest. We would, we would be the ones championing getting rid of that guy. He, he has messed up too many times. It's time for us to move on and get us a new king. It is so easy for us to, to not pause and ask God, God, what do you want? Maybe you want us to have a bad leader because we deserve it. right? I have prayed that over the last several elections. I have gone into the booth asking God, God, who do you want me to vote for? Because I'm willing to vote for bad, if that's what you want. I'm willing to vote, I'm willing to cast a vote for the king of Babylon, which is what they had to do in the Old Testament. I'm not saying that's what I should do, God. You, You tell me what you want from me. You see, we don't think that way. We've been conditioned to be loyal to what? Ourselves and our tribe. Ourselves and our tribe, that's what we're loyal to. 
We're not loyal to Christ and his bride. Oh, no, 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 no. Myself, me, myself, and I, and whoever I let be a part of my tribe, that's who I'm loyal to. And it's over and over again in Scripture, that's what God's people do, constantly. And then they say, God, if you just give us Moses, we'll listen to him. Did the people listen to Moses? Were they loyal to Moses? Nope, they weren't. And then they said, well, if you just give us judges, then we'll listen to them. Did they listen to the judges? Nope. Well, if you just give us the right king, the right, then we'll listen. Nope, they didn't listen. That's us. That's me and my heart of hearts, if I'm really honest on a daily basis and look at my heart. And yet God still was with David. God was still doing something. God was still saying, I'm going to hold you to being loyal to me and being loyal to those that I've asked to serve me. And they're not perfect and it's going to be hard to follow them. If we would understand this fully, there'd be a lot less church hopping. There'd be a lot less marriage hopping. There'd be a lot less hopping all over trying to find our peace, find our joy. And instead, we would nail ourselves down and say, God, I will live for you. And whatever the cost is in this moment, I'll give myself to you. This is what I'm going to do. It doesn't mean you don't step out in faith. That's the great part about David. He could step out in faith. He could mess up. He could do stupid things. And he could come back to God and God would give him his grace. And that's offered to all of us. Remember David's life, just real quickly as we go through it. He was anointed by Samuel at age 11. He didn't ask to be king. He wasn't looking for anything. He was, he was being a shepherd. He was just obeying. He's just being a normal boy, doing normal boy chores, taking care of the sheep of his family, risking his life for those sheep because his family depended on those sheep. And David, Samuel shows up and anoints him king and then leaves. And then a year later, he's a musician for Saul. Saul doesn't even probably know he's been anointed king, but... Saul has a demon, literally, that's, that's oppressing him, and music is the thing that gives him peace. I've always wondered if that's why Christian music is so popular, is because we're so stinking oppressed that we need music. It's the only thing left we have that gets us out of our depression and oppression. Because it was the same way with, with Saul. Saul wouldn't turn to the Lord. He wouldn't give himself fully to the Lord. He wouldn't be loyal to the Lord. Saul was loyal to himself and his own kids and his own family line and his own kingship. He goes on, he kills Goliath, commander in Saul's army. He's threatened by Saul at age 25 and he's on the run. He fights for the Philistines, which he shouldn't have done probably. And then Saul and his sons are killed. He's anointed king of Judah, but not Israel. He has to wait seven years. You talk about us having election problems. Right? How about not declaring a, you know, a president for seven years? <laughs> like, well, this half of the country believes David's president. This half doesn't. We'll just have to wait seven years till we fix it. That's a mess. Then it goes on. After he's finally anointed king of the entire kingdom, Judah and Israel, he wants to build a temple. God says no. Then he decides he's going to take it easy in his new palace. That gets him in trouble because he then starts to struggle with lust. Bathsheba. Then he has a family mess because he doesn't do a good job, as far as we can tell, of disciplining his children or obeying the Old Testament. In his 60s, he's now depressed. He quits. His son rebels, tries to kill him, and then is killed. David gets restored, and then there's division in the kingdom, and that's where we find ourselves now. <laughs> this is a man's life. This is a man that if you read the story of his life, you find out where his loyalties are, good and bad. And it's amazing to me because it's, it's David 
through this whole process, the thing you don't find is David's counselors bringing David the word of God. They're all loyal to him. They're all loyal to, to making sure he hears what he wants to hear, except maybe a couple of people. There's no confrontation. Nobody's looking at David and saying, why are you doing what Deuteronomy 17 says not to do? We have the scrolls. We have the law. No one would confront him. Because they were more loyal to their peace, their prosperity, their, their kingdom and what they wanted than they were loyal to the word of God to even confront the king at the cost of their lives. Thankfully, David kept trying to go back to the word of God. He kept trying to seek God, even in the midst of having terrible counselors. Can I tell you today, there are a lot of terrible counselors in our world today that are not using God's word, that are not pointing people to God's word in a way that says, what does God say? It's no, what do the circumstances say? What do the authorities say? What does this say? What does that say? Not, what does God's word say? And I know it because... Most Christians don't even read their Bible. It, it, they don't. They don't read it. They've never even read the book that's the most important thing in the world <laughs> and in their life. Why? Because we'd rather make sure circumstances are right. We'd rather surround ourselves with people who tell us the things we think the Bible says than to actually get in a place where we're being told what God is really like fully. And so many pastors, so many leaders are so scared to speak out about who God really is, what he's really like, how he performed in the past, how it's not different today. Like so many people are like holding back because I don't want to offend. I don't, we got to attract people. I want people to be attracted to God and his son who gave his life and gave us grace. I don't want him to be attracted to our church. I don't want him to be attracted to me. I want him to be attracted to the word of God, how he's revealed. You see, we should confront, not have blind loyalty. But when we confront, the Bible's clear, we should confront with the word of God, not, well, this is what I think, this is what I think, this is what I've experienced. Well, what does God say? What are the experiences of God? But if you don't know the book, guess what? You won't confront. And you won't confront lovingly if you don't know God and have the Holy Spirit in you, giving you love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control as you go out into the lives of people. And it'll be costly. If you look in the Bible, Jesus was clear. He said the prophets were killed. You killed the prophets because the prophets spoke God's word and you didn't want to hear it. Now, does that mean we go out meanly? No. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Does it not war, shoot him, kill him. That's not, right? Is there a time to fight? Yeah, there's a time to fight, the Bible says. There's no question about that. But we're so quick to run. So let's dive back into our story. We're in 2 Samuel chapter 20, verse 1. Remember, David has now been restored. David has really messed things up. His sons have ripped apart the kingdom because he wouldn't discipline them according to Deuteronomy and what Deuteronomy said to bring your sons before the priests, to let the priests deal with it. No, he's the king. He's going to decide. And it's created a disaster. He's now coming to the end of his life. He's now been restored. Absalom's been killed. Joab is fought for David. There's all this stuff going on. And now the kingdom is getting divided into loyalties. And it says now a wicked man. Hold on, pause. How was David not a wicked man? 
I just read to you, if we had a president in the White House that did everything that David did, all Christians would agree, that's a, that we would be convinced that's a wicked man. Right? And yet here you have now a wicked man. God says this guy's wicked. God says David had a heart for him, and David kept coming back to God. That's what having a heart for God means. It doesn't mean you're sinless. It means you recognize your sin and keep coming back so you sin less. But that's what it means. This guy is just wicked at his core. How is he wicked? A Benjaminite named Sheba, son of Bekri, happened to be there. He blew the ram's horn and shouted, We have no portion in David, no inheritance in Jesse's son, each man to his tent, Israel. So all the men of Israel deserted David and followed Sheba, son of Bichri. But the men of Judah from the Jordan all along or all the way to Jerusalem remained loyal to their king. I think there's a lot of us that would probably be with Sheba. I think there's a lot of us that would look and say, you know, Sheba makes some good points. David's done some pretty bad stuff. You know, we probably need, not what does God say? Who does God want to be in charge? No, 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 no. I've got better ideas. We have no, we have no indication that Sheba ever went and confronted David about his sin and asked for repentance. Nope. I'm just going to cause a rebellion. I'm out of here. I'm leaving. I'm taking whoever I can take with me. We're not going to be loyal to this guy. I don't know who we're going to be loyal to, but not him. And that's how it always happens in relationships. Very rarely do relationships break because people are actually seeking the word of God, seeking the counsel of God's people, seeking the church. Rarely. It's always this. It's always a decision of a person that decides he's loyal to no one but himself and what he wants and the circumstances and outcomes he thinks should happen. And that's what I'm going to be loyal to. That's what I'm going to give my life to. And that's what he does. And he leads Israel astray. And Israel, just like the Bible talks about, was more than happy to go with Sheba. More than happy to follow him. You realize that God told the people that if you get a king, that king, even though he's my king, is going to do all these things to you. And he lists out all the sins that David committed hundreds of years before. In Deuteronomy, and then he mentions it again a few years, decades before, before David comes on the scene. These people made an oath, a loyal oath that they wanted a king. This is what we want. This is our desire. God, we don't want you to be our king. We don't want to hear from you directly. We we need to keep you at a distance. We don't want you too close. That's what they agreed to. Now they're experiencing the consequences that God said would happen if you did that. And now they're throwing God and anyone and, and all of God's plans and what they agreed to and the oath they made to the curb so they can do what they want. And we do the same thing. We do. We do it constantly. It goes on, and remember, this guy, Sheba, of course, he's from Saul's family, the old king's fam- family line. That's the Benjaminites. That's, Saul was a, of the tribe of Benjamin. This guy's of the tribe of Benjamin, so there's probably a little bit of a motive to say, well, we originally had the kingdom. You see this in church all the time. You see leaders that, that lead based on circumstances instead of the word of God. We're getting ready to present to you in the next several weeks the money that we are given. And I hope that you'll see that our heart behind what we're going to do and what we're going to present, I hope you see that our heart behind that is based on the word of God. It's not based on our, our, our 
circumstances, not what we want, not what we hope. Nope. We're going to do what God says in his word with the money that he's given us to the best of our ability. We're going to trust him. Could we be wrong? Yep. (laughs) I've been wrong a lot in my life. But we're going to give it to you guys. We're not just going to do what we want. It's going to be the body coming together. You see, these people made a decision of independence from God and they said they'd be led. Look at what Peter says about our loyalty and our oath, about being loyal to those that are in authority over you. He says, dear friends, I urge you as strangers, strangers and temporary residents to abstain from fleshly desires that war against you. This is what will make you an enemy of God, your fleshly desires. They will put you at odds with God. There is a war going on in you every day and your flesh is crying out, I want this, I want this, I want this. Yesterday, I woke up last night in the middle of the night so sore all over my body. And I'm like, what is going on? I've been sick and everything else. And then I remembered, I lost the battle all day yesterday with food. I ate all kinds of stuff I should not have eaten yesterday because it all looked good. And I hadn't had an appetite for about a week. And I woke up this morning so stiff and sore. And I'm like, because I ate so much junk, my joints hurt, right? I'm like, I cannot do that. I'm not 20. I'm 46. I'm old. My body's like, stop it. (laughs) Right? And so again, it's little things like that that will get you. And then he goes on and he says, conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles. That's people who don't believe in God. So that in a case where they speak against you as those who do what is evil, just like Sheba was doing evil, they will, by observing your good works, glorify God on the day of visitation. That means someday God's going to visit them. Someday God's going to try to reach them. And if you've lived your life before them, surrendering to God, fighting the war of the flesh, and they've watched you do that, they might just remember what it looks like to follow God and commit their life to be loyal and follow God. That's what Peter's saying. Then he goes on and he says, submit to every human authority because of the Lord. Not because it's good for you, not because it's best for your circumstances. No, because the Lord has asked us to figure out the best way we can to submit. Now, if they're asking you to worship someone different, do you submit? Nope, I don't submit. But last time I checked, the government isn't asking us to worship someone other than Jesus. I think they're doing a lot of stupid things. So did David. But you know what? I can still submit, and if I can't submit, I can have a conversation from Scripture of why I'm struggling with doing this. Because the government's wanting to please flesh, and I don't want to please flesh. And I'm trying to fight this. It says, whether to the emperor or as the supreme authority, or to governors as those sent out by him to punish those who do what is evil and praise those who do what is good. For it is God's will that you silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing good. There's something to be said about living a simple life that just silences the foolishness that we see going on in our world today. There's something to be said about living a simple life that people look and go, that's different. (laughs) It goes on and it says, as God's slaves live as free people, but don't use your freedom as a way to conceal evil. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. There's a sense of humility. There's a sense of God's got this. I can be loyal to God in the midst of the mess. I can commit myself to God in the midst of the mess. I can confront the emperor. I can confront 
the brotherhood. I can confront and honor people. I can do that, but I need to do it based on the loyalty I have to God and his word, not because I don't like how circumstances are working out. He goes on in Titus and says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work. There are some works that the rulers and authorities will ask us to do that aren't good. Don't do those. But tell them why you can't do them. I'm sorry, I can't do that, and it's not good, and here's why. I want, I want to obey you. I, I want to listen to you, but I don't know how to rectify my faith with what you're asking, and so I'm going to have to choose God and still respect you, and here's the deal, I'll receive the consequences of whatever you say because you're in charge. That is not how we do things. He goes on and he says, look at this, be, be ready for every good work to slander no one. Slander is telling a lie about someone publicly. That's slander. If slander is telling the truth about someone's dirt, then God is the biggest slanderer we've ever had in the history of the world because we have page after page of people's dirt listed in scripture of what they did and what happened. God doesn't slander, God warns. There's a difference between slander and warning. Slander is you're nothing, I'm trying to get above you, I'm trying to put you out. No, 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 that's what Sheba did. What we're called to do is to warn, to admonish, to encourage. He says, to avoid fighting, to be kind, always showing gentleness to all people. Those are all fruits of the Spirit. For we too were once foolish, you ever come to a place in your life where you realize how stupid you are? If you haven't, I encourage you to get there. <laughs> because when you finally get there, you finally realize, wow, I need God. <laughs> and I need his people. And I need something more than myself because I, I, this is bad if it's just me and him. If it's just me, this is bad. There's more to it. He goes on and he says, because we were disobedient, deceived, enslaved by various passions and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful, detesting one another. Welcome to uh, America 2021. That pretty much gives us the list of how people are treating each other right now. How even believers are treating one another right now. Over things that don't matter eternally. And it breaks my heart. He goes on and he says... But when the kindness of God, I love this, when the kindness of God our Savior, which we sang about, and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. Not by works of righteousness that we had done, because we aren't right, but according to his mercy through the washing of regeneration. And that's what God kept doing for David. And renewal by the Holy Spirit. He poured out the Spirit on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. That's Yahweh who saves, who is the Messiah who saves. So that having been justified by his grace, in other words, we're not justified because we're right, because someone voted us in office, because someone anointed us. That's not why I'm not justified because I'm the pastor. I'm justified because of what Christ has done and his grace that he's given me. May we become heirs. That's Heirs means you're a part of the kingdom with the king. With the hope of eternal life, this saying is trustworthy. I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed God might be careful to devote themselves to good works. These are good and profitable for everyone. That begs the question, what is a good work? How are you going to know what a good work is? How are you going to know if something is a good work or not a good work? This is not a trick question. The Bible. 
Let me say that again. How are you going to know if something's a good work or not a good work? The Bible. <laughs> right? You know what's amazing to me that no one's talked about, hardly at all, about this coronavirus? We're all concerned about where it came from. Do you realize that God warned his people back in Deuteronomy not to mess with bats? We just read that in our family devotions this past week. Bats are an unclean animal. God said, don't touch them, don't be near them, don't be around them. No, 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 we can control it. We can control the bats. We can play with the bat stuff and it'll be fine. They're unclean. It won't cost you your salvation under the new covenant to play with a bat. If you play with a bat, you study bats, you want to be with bat, that's fine. It's not going to cost you your salvation because our salvation isn't in our works. It's in grace. It's what God provides. But you know what? There's still consequences. Pork is still a very unclean animal. I don't know if you know that. Eat bacon every day and see how that goes for you at about 50, 60 and heart disease. Just try it. See, God's word gives us a lot of wisdom. He tells us what are good and not good. He also gives us the freedom to say, you can do what's not good and, and I'll still love you. I'll still give you eternal life because it's not about your righteousness, it's about me. And we just don't like that message because it takes the control out of our hands. This is what Jesus said in Matthew about our loyalty. He said again, you have heard that it was said to our ancestors, you must not break your oath. But you must keep your oaths to the Lord. But I tell you, don't take an oath at all, either by heaven because it's God's throne or by the earth because it's his footstool or by Jerusalem because it's the city of the great king. You know how you ramp things up? Well, I swear on my grandmother's second removed grave. I swear on my mother's grave. Like, we want to ramp up like that. That means more. No, Jesus says it this way. Neither should you swear by your head because you cannot make a single hair white or black, but let your word yes be yes and your no be no Anything more than this is from the evil one, straight from Satan. See, we give our yeses too quickly. We give our noes too quickly. We don't check in with God to ask what he wants. And then once we give our yeses and noes, which we'll see in a minute, God expects us to keep them forever till the time we die. Or he expects us to repent and say, I was evil and wrong when I gave that yes or that no. And God deserves death. I deserve punishment. But I am grateful that God has given me his grace. And I'm still going to try to uphold that. But man, that's how we should be with our loyalty. When David came to his palace in Jerusalem, he took the ten concubines that he had left to take care of the palace. Remember, he left ten concubines in charge when he got depressed and quit. And he just gave the kingdom over to his son without a fight. Then Absalom came in and raped all 10 of these concubines because he had bad advice. And he had left to take care of the palace. David shouldn't have concubines, by the way. David should have one wife. That's what Deuteronomy says. No concubines, no other wives. Deuteronomy 17. He's supposed to keep a copy of Deuteronomy 17 right next to his throne, the Bible says. He didn't. And nobody warned him. They let him have concubines. They let him have wives. And it just keeps causing a bigger and bigger and bigger mess. But look at David's commitment to these concubines. He placed them under guard. He provided them. But he was not intimate with them. They were confined until the day of their death, living as widows. Because in Israel, they could have been killed for what happened. They, they, they could have been, he could have cast them away as dirty and sent them away and not taken care of them. And instead, David said, I'll take care of you the rest of your life. And I know no man in Israel is going to want someone who's been used. Can I just tell you that we have a king that does the same thing for us? That there is a world that says you've been used, you're worthless, you're nothing. And we have a king that says, I'll pay the price, I'll put you under guard, you'll be mine, and I'll protect you till the day you die. 
you're mine. You're under my care. And you may think you're worthless. You may think there's nothing. Now, that doesn't mean I'm going to fix your circumstances. This is, a, this is a rough ride. But I'm with you, and I won't quit, and I'll provide for you. He goes on. The king said to Amasa, summon the men of Judah to me within three days and be here yourself. Remember, he told Amasa that he would turn over the kingdom to him or turn over the, the, the army to him instead of to Joab. David had cursed Joab earlier, and so this is what he's doing. Amasa was also Absalom's general. Like, I don't know if this was a good decision or not. David's playing favorites, I don't know, but David is putting the guy that was with Absalom in charge of his own army. Amasa went to summon Judah, but he took longer than the time allotted, so David said to Abishai, Sheba, son of... Bichri will do more harm to us than Absalom. Take your Lord's soldiers and pursue him, or he will find fortified cities and elude us. So Joab's men, with the Kerathites and the Pelathites and all the warriors, marched out under Abishai's command. They left Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, son of Bichri. Okay, so this is what they're doing. This is what's going on. They were at the gate, the great stone in Gibeon, when Amasa joined them, Joab was wearing his uniform and over it was a belt around his waist with a sword its sheath. As he approached, the sword fell out. Joab asked Amasa, are you well, my brother? Then with his right hand, Joab grabbed Amasa by the beard to kiss him. Amasa was not on guard against the sword in Joab's hand and Joab stabbed him in the stomach with it and spilled his intestines out on the ground. Joab did not stab him again for Amasa was dead. There's still a mess. David's been restored. You think, oh, here it goes. It's going to be better. There's still a mess. Can I just tell you, there's still a mess today. <laughs> you're going to come to know Christ. You're going to walk with him, and there's just going to be messes. I don't know what the right decision was here. I don't know if David should not have done Amasa. I don't know. I'll just tell you, this is the kind of stuff that goes on in our world. Joab was a fighter. Joab was someone that was loyal to David. And here... He didn't always listen to David, but he was loyal to him. And here he recognizes that Amasa wasn't loyal, and he kills him. But God didn't tell him to kill him, I don't think. Remember when Peter wanted to take out his sword and fight, and Jesus said, put that away? <laughs> it's not what we're doing now. <laughs> don't be like Joab, Peter. <laughs> he goes on, he says, Joab and his brother Abishai pursued Sheba, son of Bichri. One of Joab's young men had stood over Amasa saying, whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, follow Joab. Now Amasa was writhing in his blood in the middle of the highway and the man had seen that all the people stopped. So he moved Amasa from the highway to the field and threw a garment over him because he realized that all those who encountered Amasa were stopping. When he was removed from the highway, the men passed by and followed Joab to pursue Sheba, son of Bichri. There's some mercy here. Like he doesn't need to be ashamed. Like this wasn't his fault. So he pulls his body away and gets it. Goes on, Sheba passed through all the tribes of Israel to Abel of Beth Makkah. All the Barites came together and followed him. Joab's troops came and besieged Sheba in Abel of Beth Makkah. They built an assault ramp against the other wall of the city while all the troops were with Joab, battering the wall to make it collapse. A wise woman called out from the city, listen, listen, please tell Joab, come here and let me speak with him. When he had come near, the woman said, or woman asked, are you Joab? I am, he replied. Listen to the words of your servant, she said to him. He answered, I'm listening. 
She said, in the past, they used to stay, seek counsel and able, and that's how they settled disputes. I'm a peaceful person. I'm one of the faithful in Israel, but you're trying to destroy a city that's like a mother in Israel. Why would you devour the Lord's inheritance? Why are you doing this to us? Obviously, they don't even know why this is happening. Joab assumes that they understand why he's doing this. They don't. Then he says, Joab protested. Never. I do not want to destroy. That's my, not my intention. No, Joab likes to destroy things. He doesn't like to have a conversation before he makes decisions. He just likes to make decisions and whatever happens, I'll ask permission later. Right? Or I'll ask forgiveness later. I don't ask permission, I just ask forgiveness later. That's Joab. He's a destroying an entire city, and this city, this woman has no idea why. They don't even know why. This is what happens all the time in relationships. That our loyalties are questions, and we don't even ask why you're doing what you're doing. Well, why are you not doing this? Why are you not doing that? Let's have a conversation. And that why should be based on Scripture, and we should have a conversation. We should listen to one another and sit and talk before we go to war. And you can't get people to do it. They've already decided what their loyalty is. They've already decided what they're going to do, and they're coming at you with a fight. Joab, at least in this moment, is willing to listen. Look what happens. Listen to the words of your servant, she said. She said in the past, oh, sorry, moving on. There is a man named Sheba, son of Bitri from the hill of e country of Ephraim, who has rebelled against King David. Deliver this one man, and I will withdraw from the city. This is kind of like the gospel, that Jesus was the one man who died for us so that God would deliver through him the rest of us. This is a picture of the gospel. It goes on, it says, and I'll withdraw. The woman replied to Joab, all right, his head will be thrown over the wall to you. Well, he didn't ask for that. That's pretty amazing. Like, here, here he, like, I can't imagine that happening. And then he says, the woman went to all the people with her wise counsel and they cut off the head of Sheba, son of Bitri, and threw, him, threw it out to Joab. So he blew the ram's horn and they dispersed from the city, each to his own tent, and Joab returned to the king in Jerusalem. You see, loyalty is most exposed. Are you ready for this? Listen, our loyalty is most exposed in what we will give our life to or what we will take life from. Let me say that again. Our loyalty is most exposed in what we will give our lives for or to and what we will take life from. I am loyal to the preservation of my home. So this week I took a groundhog. He's dead. Sorry. Because groundhogs go under your foundation. They'll dig under the foundation of your house, come into your crawl space, and make a home. And weaken the foundation of your home. That ain't happening. I'm more loyal to my home and the resources that I have than little furry cute groundhog out in my backyard. Sorry. I could be wrong. Maybe God's going to hold me accountable for that because I didn't eat him. I don't know. But... But what we're willing to do, what we're willing to give our life to or take life from says what our loyalty is really about. And it's no different here. This woman knew. She wanted to declare that her loyalty was for God and his people. She's wondering, Joab, why are you doing this? And then Joab explains, and they act accordingly. The rebellion has to be dealt with. You just can't let it go. You can't just keep letting rebellion go because it will get worse. And people will die. You have to confront it. Does that mean you're not patient? Or you, no, that, you can be patient. You can do all those things. But it can't not be confronted. Because that's what loyalty does. 
Look at what 2 Timothy 2 says. So if anyone purifies himself, like this city purified themselves from this guy that they didn't even know was there, he says, from anything dishonorable, he will be a special instrument, set apart, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. Flee youthful passions, pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart, which means there are people who are calling on the Lord from an impure heart. That's what you see in Scripture. There are tons of people who say they believe in the God of Israel. I bet you've asked Sheba if he believed in the God of Israel, he'd say, absolutely, that's why I'm doing this. I've got to overthrow David because I want what's best for Israel. But it's a pure heart. He says, but reject foolish and ignorant disputes. There's a difference between good disputes and bad disputes. It doesn't say don't have disputes. It says reject the ignorant and foolish ones. You know what those are, right? You have them all the time. Sometimes, like me, I like to just pick at ignorant and foolish disputes for fun. You know what I mean? Like just, well, let's have this discussion and see where it goes. <laughs> it's not ignorant to have discussions about God, his word, and his righteousness and who he is. Then he goes on, he says, The Lord's slave must not quarrel, but be gentle to everyone. Gentle does, you can kill someone gently, or you can kill them mercilessly. God is gentle, but he still destroys right? Gentleness is not how we perceive it. The gentle's like, oh, I just, you're so nice. And I, no, that, that is not gentleness. It might be. Often it's not. It's actually weakness. It's, it's not gentleness. It's actually just, I want to keep things the way they are. Gentleness is saying, I have to deal with this, but I want to deal with it in the most gentle way possible. It's like police officers. They try to arrest someone or question someone. They don't want to be questioned and they have to ramp up and lose a little bit more gentleness. They don't want to shoot anybody because the paperwork's too long. That's not what they're trying to do. But the more you rebel, guess what? The more they have to ramp up. It's the same with all of us. It goes on, it says, perhaps God will grant them repentance. The reason you act like Timothy just said to act is because you understand that maybe by acting that way, by following God, by doing what he says, by being his slave, that maybe the people that I want to see God will repent and they will come to the knowledge of the truth, that they may come to their senses and escape the devil's trap, having been captured by him to do his will. Sheba was captured by the devil to do the devil's work. God called him evil. He was evil to the core. And it cost him his life. Don't be caught in a trap by Satan, by the devil, to do what he wants. Man, be caught up in the Lord. Be caught up with his people. Joab commanded the whole army of Israel. Benaiah, son of Jehodiah, was over the Keharathites and the Pelethites. Adoram was in charge of the forced labor. Jehoshaphat, son of Alehud, was in court historian. Sheba was court secretary. Zadok and Abathar were the priests. And in addition, Ira the Jerite was David's priest. These are all the people that are listed who are loyal to David. These people were loyal to the king. Were they perfect? No, because Zadok and Abathar never produced Deuteronomy 17 that we know of in Scripture and put it beside David. They never held him accountable. But that's the great thing about the grace of God. God is consistent to his covenant even when we're not. That's why we can put our hope and our trust in him. During David's reign, there was a famine for three successive years. Three years of a famine. We don't know what that's like in America. That hasn't happened since the Great Dust Bowl in the 1930s in our country. Three years of famine. So David inquired of the Lord. Why didn't he inquire in the first year? 
You ever think about that? Maybe he was inquiring the whole time. I don't know. And the Lord answered, it's because of the blood shed by Saul and his family when he killed the Gibeonites. Dude, that was like 40 years ago. (laughs) That'd be my response to God. That happened like 40 years ago. Why are you holding it now, three years of famine? Why didn't you give Saul three years of famine? Why is it on my reign, my watch? See, God doesn't forget. God asks us to deal with sin. God asks us to deal with the problems in our world in a way that honor him and are loyal to him. Not in a way that are loyal to the world, but in a way that recognizes what he has done in his oaths. Because watch, watch this. The Gibeonites were not Israelites, but rather a remnant of the Amorites. The Israelites had taken an oath concerning them, but Saul had tried to kill them in his zeal for the Israelites and Judah. So David summoned the Gibeonites and he spoke to them. You got to know who the Gibeonites are. These are the people that David's getting ready to go before the entire nation and defend. And you would not want them defended if you were an Israelite. Because here's the story of the Gibeonites. Joshua chapter 9. When the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done. Remember, Joshua was commanded to go into the promised land and annihilate everyone. Annihilate all the Amorites. They're Amorites. He was to wipe them out, push them out. They can either submit to God and repent. They can either be killed or they can run for their lives. Those were the three options God gave as they went into the promised land. It's also the three options he's going to give to people when the new promised land comes. You can either be annihilated or you can repent. You can try to run, but you can't run too long. You're still going to have to face him. That's exactly the same thing when they went into the promised land the first time. When Jesus comes back, it's the same thing. He goes on, he says, Gibeon had heard what Joshua had done to the Jericho. Remember the Joshua fit the battle of Jericho. Jer- the walls came tumbling down. Okay. And Ai. They acted deceptively. The Gibeonites acted deceptively. They put on old clothes and said they came from afar and they said, we want your God to be our God. We, we want you to make a covenant with us. We want you to make an oath, a yes, be yes, no, be no, a treaty with us. And we're from far away. And the Bible says, look, then the men of Israel took some of the provisions. They inspected them, but they did not seek the Lord's counsel. You ever done that? Give your yes. Oh yeah, I'll do that. Oh no. But you never prayed about it. You didn't ask. You didn't look at the person and say, well, let me, let me ask God about that. Let me ask my family. Let's, let me ask my church. Let me, let me talk about that first. No, we just do what circumstances say. Well, gosh, I got this job. It must be what God wants. I, I got this. It must be what God wants. God's just providing for me. Say, like I said a couple of weeks ago, Satan can provide stuff for you. Do you know that? He can give you all kinds of goodies. You need to seek the Lord and ask him. Seek the counsel of those around you. They didn't do that. And it says, so Joshua established a peace with them and made a treaty with them to live. And the leaders of the community swore an oath to them. Verse 22, Joshua summoned the Gibeonites. Then they, then they, they go to attack the Gibeonites the next day. And the Gibeonites, guess what? They're like, ah, 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 you made a treaty with us. We have the paper. And he's like, well, you deceived us. I know, but you still, yes, be yes, no, be No. Verse 22, Joshua summoned the Gibeonites and said to them, why did you deceive us by telling us you live far away from us when in fact you're living among us? The Gibeonites' answer is amazing. Watch their answer. The Gibeonites answered him. It was clearly communicated to your servants, your servants. They already recognized that the treaty we made makes us your servants. We've surrendered. You tell us what to do. 
that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and destroy all the inhabitants of the land before you. We greatly feared for our lives because of you, and that is why we did this. Now we are in your hands. Do whatever you think is right. That's called repentance, folks. That's called surrender. That's called, we don't want to die, and we know that your God is powerful, so we surrender to your God. Whatever you want, we'll do. I wish more people would have that attitude to the people of God, to one another, to the church, to their marriages. More people would have the heart of these wicked Gibeonites because they said, we see your God's more powerful than anything we have. And the Gibeonites were one of the most faithful people to serve God's people to the end of their days. They brought all the wood and all the water for all the washing and all the sacrifices of God for the rest of their history. That's all they did. Cut wood, bring wood, wash people. That's it. They served constantly. And Saul decided to kill him because he was trying to make a name for himself. And I'm going to destroy all those Amorites. And he didn't keep the loyalty and the covenant that God made. And God said, when you give a yes and when you give a no, I expect it to be kept. And when it wasn't kept by Saul, David said, he looked at David and he said, those Gibeonites have not had justice. Justice has not been done for them. You need to take care of this and you need to make the nation, write it down, you need the nation to know that I'm serious about loyalty. Goes on and says this, this is what Joshua did to them. He delivered them to the hands of the Israelites and did not kill them. Oh, I'm sorry, this is actually 2 Samuel 26. Delivered them to hand, did not kill them. On that day, he made a, or no, this is Gibeonites. He made them woodcutters and water carriers as they are today for the community of the Lord and the Lord's altar at the place he would choose. He asked the Gibeonites, this is David, what should I do for you? Wow. I've inquired of the Lord. Now I'm asking you, what should I do for you? You have been grossly mistreated. You have been grossly destroyed when you have been faithful to serve us. How can I make atonement so that you will bring blessing on the Lord's inheritance? The only way to make atonement is death, according to Scripture. There is no atonement without death. That's why Christ had to die, was to atone for our sins. He goes on, he says, The Gibeonites said to him, We are not asking for money. We're not asking for any benefits from Saul or his family. And we cannot put anyone to death in Israel. We can't kill people. We can't just take matters into our own hands. Whatever you say, I will do for you, David said. They replied to the king, As for the man who annihilated us and plotted to destroy us so we would not exist within our own territory of Israel... Let seven of his male descendants be handed over to us so we may hang them on, in the presence of the Lord at Gibbeth of Saul, the Lord's chosen. The king answered, I will hand them over for you. This would not have been popular with David's people, the Israelites. He's already got a split kingdom. He's trying to bring this kingdom back together and make people happy. And now to do justice, it means he's ticking off God's people. Because God's people don't remember covenants. They're not loyal. They just do whatever circumstance dictates. And God's like, no, you're going to do what I've asked you to do. And when you give your word, you're going to follow up with your word or you're going to repent. And somebody has to atone for this. Goes on, it says, David spared Mephibosheth, the son of Saul's son, Jonathan. Why? Because of the oath, the loyalty of the Lord that was between David and Jonathan, Saul's son. But the king took Ammonai, and Mephibosheth, who are the two sons 
whom Rizpah, daughter of Ai, had borne to Saul, and the five sons whom Merab, daughter of Saul, had borne to Adriel, son of Barzilia, the Mahalathite, and handed them over to the Gibeonites. They hanged them in the hill in the presence of the Lord. The seven of them died together. And you look and say, how could God just, why would he do that? Why would God kill his own son? His own son was hanged on our behalf. And in this circumstance, these seven sons are being hanged on behalf of God's people. They're being hanged to declare justice, that there's no justice without death. Look at David and look at this next part. They were executed on the first days of the harvest at the beginning of the barley harvest. Do you know what time of year this was? They were executed at the Passover. The barley harvest was the beginning of the Passover. Seven men hanging, reminding them of their sin they deserve to die for, and God passed over their sin in the Old Testament and their firstborn to not carry out justice. And in this sense, God is saying, I will pass over with the plague or the, the, with the um, famine. I'll let the famine pass, but there has to be death. This is Passover. This, this is our God that, that, that lays this out and Isn't it interesting that Saul's family doesn't go to war? They accept it. They accept the punishment. They take it on, even though it wasn't their fault, probably. But look at what David does. I'm sorry, look at Luke 22. It says, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, scribes, and be killed, and be raised on the third day. Then he said to them all, If anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Are you willing to be hung? These seven sons were willing to be hung. Are you willing to be hung for the benefit of others? Are you willing to be hung so that someone else might not perish? See, this is the theme that keeps going through Scripture. It doesn't go away. We're celebrating the frontline workers right now, right? Because they were willing to put themselves out there and be hung, if need be, to care for us. There's something about that that just declares the gospel that the Son of Man came to do exactly that for us, and he asked us to do the same, to pick up our cross. Then he said, if any of you wants to come with me, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will save it. What is a man benefited if he gains the whole world, yet forfeits his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of the Father and the holy angels. And look what David does. When they killed the men, Rizpah, Ahaz's daughter, took sackcloth and spread it out for herself on the rock from the beginning of the harvest till the rain poured down from the heaven on the bodies. She kept the birds of the sky from them by day and the wild animals by night. When it was reported to David what Saul's concubine, Rizpah, daughter of Ai, had done, he went and got the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan from the leaders of Gibbish Gilead. They had stolen them from the public square of Beth Haven where the Philistines had hung the bodies the day the Philistines killed Saul at Gilboa. David had the bones brought from there. They gathered up the bones of Saul's family who had been hung and buried the bones of Saul and his sons Jonathan and Zelah in the land of Benjamin in the tomb of Saul's father Kish. They did everything the king commanded, and after this, God answered prayer for the land. See, David was merciful. He gave them a proper burial. He, he looked and said, okay, enough's enough. And David also believed in something. You know what he believed in? The resurrection. 
And he knew that if he took care of their dead bodies, then maybe God would bring life back into their dead bodies. So he grabbed them, he brought them. This was an act of incredible loyalty to Saul and to his family. When King David could have said, that's right, that's what happens to you. That's what's going to happen to you when I'm king. Versus saying, my heart's broken. I don't want to have to do this. I don't want to have to die. I don't want... Then what happens? The Philistines wage war again against Israel. David went down with his soldiers and they fought the Philistines, but David became exhausted. Remember, he's in his 60s and he's still fighting. <laughs> he's out with a sword in his 60s. Then... His, then uh, Shibanob, one of the descendants of the giant whose bronze spear weighed about eight pounds and who wore armor, intended to kill David. But Abishai, son of Zeriah, came to his aid, struck the Philistine, and killed him. Then David's men swore to him, you must never go out again with us to battle. You must not extinguish the lamp of Israel. Like, I love that this story's in there. Like, it's like random. Like, dude, we love you. We know that last time you stayed home, it was bad for you. It's time for you to stay. Like, you cannot... We can't protect you and win battles. You need to stay home. We love you. Like, this is incredible loyalty. After this, there was another battle with the Philistines at Gob, and at that time, Sebekai, the Hushanite, killed Saph, who was one of the descendants of the giant. Once again, there was a battle with the Philistines at Gob, and Elihan, son of Jeroragim, the Bethlehemite, killed Goliath, the Gittite. That's a different Goliath, by the way. The shaft of the spear was like a weaver's beam. At Gath, there was still another battle. A huge man was there with six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot and all. He too was descended from the giant. I've met a guy who had six fingers, by the way. It's crazy. And so this all happened. God is going back and reminding David at the end of his life when he's depressed and everything, and the thing's a mess, he's saying, I'm still killing giants. I'm still taking care of the people. It's just not you doing it, David. You have raised up other men now who are loyal to serve me and fight for me, and they're killing the giants. And that's the job of the church to raise up people loyal to God, loyal to our king, not King David, King Jesus, that will serve him and fight for him in the battles he calls us into. When he had taunted Israel, Jonathan, son of David's brother, Shemai, killed him. These four were descended from the giant in Gath and were killed by David and his soldiers. David spoke these words. Now we come to the end, and we're just going to read this, and we'll be done. We come to the end, and here's David. We've seen his life. He's depressed. When David was a young man, he wrote Psalm 18. This 2 Samuel 22 is almost identical to Psalm 18. So David writes a song. He writes this song when he's 18, talking about how God had delivered him at a very young age. Then he goes through life, and it's tough, and it's a mess. But yet when David comes down to the end of his life, we find him being reminded of the song he wrote, giving thanks to God and declaring his loyalty. And isn't that how it is with us all the time? that we may go through problems and struggles, our families may be a mess, it may be a disaster, but isn't it amazing how God will remind us of how he was faithful before, how we spoke to him, a journal entry, a prayer, something we had before, and he'll bring us back around to him and be like, I can trust you, I can believe in you, I'm coming to the end of my life. David is at the end of his life at this point. I can believe in you. Look at what he says. So David spoke the words of the song to the Lord on the day the Lord rescued him from the hand of all his enemies. And from the hand of Saul, he said, The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer, my God, my mountain, where I seek my refuge, my, sh my shield, the horn of my salvation, my stronghold, my refuge, and my Savior. You saved me from violence. I called to the Lord who is worthy of praise, and I was saved from my enemies. Man, what a powerful word. 
For the waves of death engulfed me. The torrents of destruction terrified me. The ropes of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. I called to the Lord in my distress. I called to my God. And from his temple, he heard my voice and my cry for help and reached out his ears. In Hebrews, it says, Therefore, since we have such a great high priest who ascended into heaven, who paid the price for us, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess like David is. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. That's what David always did. David believed this before it was written. David believed he could keep coming back to the throne of grace and throw himself at God and embrace the consequences of his decisions and say, God, I'm yours. And he called the people around him to do the same. Did he sin? Did he not know God's word like he should have? Absolutely, but he kept coming back to this. That's why at the end of his life, he's writing the same stuff he wrote at the beginning of his life. Because can I tell you, you'll need the gospel as much when you're 90 as you did when you were 9 or 19. You need the gospel every day. He goes on and he says, Then the earth shook and quaked. The foundations of heaven trembled. They shook because he burned with anger. Smoke rose from a nostril and consuming fire from his mouth. Coals were set ablaze by it. He parted the heavens and came down. A dark cloud beneath his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew, soaring on the wings of the wind. He made darkness a canopy around him, a gathering of water and thick clouds. From the radiance of his presence, flaming coals were ignited. The Lord thundered from heaven. The Most High projected his voice. He shot arrows and scattered them. He hurled lightning bolts and routed them. The depths of the sea became visible. The foundations of the world were exposed at the rebuke of the Lord, at the blast of the breath of his nostrils. Why would David write this? Because David knows that there is an unseen spiritual battle that's been happening in his life, his entire life. That there have been angels fighting, there have been stuff going on, depths shaking, things happening, and he doesn't know why, but he knows that God's been doing it because God's winning the battle. He's not losing See, David, by faith, is saying, I know there's a war. And even though I I don't see it all, I don't understand it all, I know there's something going on behind the scenes. And then look at what he says. Tune in. Hear this. This is for you. He says, God reached down from heaven and he took a hold of me. He pulled me out of deep waters. He rescued me from my powerful enemy, that's Satan himself, and, and from those who hated me, for they were too strong for me. They confronted me in the day of my distress, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a spacious place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. Do you read that? How could God delight in David with all he did? How could God still have delight for David? Because David delighted in God, that's why goes on, it says, the Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness, the righteousness God gave him. David didn't make himself right, God made him right. He repaid me according to the cleanliness of my hands. Who cleaned David? Did David clean himself? Nope, he had to go to the priest to get cleanliness. He had to submit to God. God cleaned him. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not turned from my God to wickedness. And you go, yeah, you did. No, not fully. I'm not evil at heart. I may do stupid things. I may not listen. I may not know. I may not have good counselors around me, but daggummit, I'm going to keep coming back to your ways. I'm going to keep seeking you until the day you come back. 
Indeed, I have kept all his ordinances in mind, and I have not dis disregarded his statutes. I was blameless before him. He was blameless because God made him blameless. And I kept myself from sinning. So the Lord repaid me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanliness in his sight. All of that given by God himself. You can't make yourself clean. A priest has to do that. And God, Jesus is our high priest. With the faithful, you prove yourself faithful. With the blameless, you prove yourself blameless. With the pure, you prove yourself pure. But with the crooked, you prove yourself shrewd. You rescue an afflicted people, but your eyes are set against the proud, and you humble them. Why would David know that his heart was set against the proud? Because David got proud a few times, and God put his heart in the right place, didn't he? On multiple occasions. Lord, you are my lamp. Wait a minute. I thought the soldiers said David was the lamp. You see the credit? David's saying, I'm not the lamp. Oh, no, no. God's the lamp. The Lord illuminates my darkness. With you, I can attack a barrier. With my God, I can leap over a wall. God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is pure. Again, there's the word. He is a shield to all those who take refuge in him. For who is God besides the Lord? And who is a rock? Only our God. God is my strong refuge. He makes my way perfect. He makes the feet like the feet of a deer and sets me securely on the heights. He trains my hands for war. My arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have given me the shield of your salvation. You help exalt me, or your help exalts me. You widen the place beneath my steps, and my ankles do not give way. I pursue my enemies and destroy them. I did not turn back until they are wiped out. I wipe them out and crush them, and they do not rise. They fall beneath my feet. You have closed me with strength for battle. You subdue my adversaries beneath me. You have made my enemies retreat before me. I annihilate those who hate you. They look, but there is no one to save them. They look to the Lord but he does not answer them. David comes down and he says, you know, there's a group of people, there's a group of people that look to the Lord, and, but they don't answer because they're not surrendered to him. They, they just want him to fix the consequences instead of embracing the consequences of seven sons being hung. See, we don't want the consequences. We want a God that's going to deliver us from the consequences, not ask us to move into them to serve other people. And we got to be very careful with that in the days we live in because there's a lot of people running around with drawing instead of moving into people's lives. Do we need to do it with wisdom? Absolutely. But we've got to hear what David is writing. James 4 says this, What is the source of wars and fights among you? Don't they come from the cravings that are at war within you? You desire and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war and you do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and don't receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your evil desires. That's the people David is talking about right there in their sentence. He's like, then they go on. David wraps up and he says, I pulverize them like dust on the earth. I crush them and trample them like mud on the streets. This is what Jesus, our king, will do someday. This is kind of prophetic. David is talking about what kings do, what the king will do. You have freed me from the feuds among my people. You have appointed me the head of nations. A people I had not known Serve me even the Gibeonites. Foreigners submit to me grudgingly. As soon as they hear, they obey me. Foreigners lose heart and come trembling from their fortifications. We're supposed to go out into the world to tell foreigners about who God is so that they can turn to him. And then he wraps up and he says, the Lord lives. May my rock be praised. God, the rock of my salvation is exalted. God, he gives me vengeance and casts down 
peoples under me. He frees me from my enemies. You exalt me above my adversaries. You rescue me from violent men. Therefore, I will praise you, Lord, among the nations. Do you praise him? David always came back to praise. Always came back to giving credit to God. Always came back to God is the one that we all need to submit to. He is a tower of salvation for his king. (laughs) The king that's coming again. He shows loyalty. Look at this. He shows loyalty to his anointed, to David and his descendants forever. Let me ask you, do you realize that he shows loyalty to you? You want to know why? Because if you've made God your king, if you've invited him to come into your life, then he says he has anointed you with the Holy Spirit. That he has given you the anointing of the Holy Spirit. He says you are mine now. You are bought with a price. And he says he is loyal to his anointed. The question is, are we loyal to him? Do we understand that we're a part of a chain going all the way back to David and going all the way forward that has nothing to do with us? It's all about him because David recognized that. That's why he came down in the midst of all of this in his old age, not willing, able to fight all the mess that he's created. And we find him in his last days thanking God, crying out to God and calling the people to be loyal to their God. Can I just encourage you? That's our message that we take to the world, to be loyal to God. We do that with our good works, with simple oaths that we take, like we see with the Gibeonites. We go before God and ask him, what's your yes, what's your no? But can I ask those of you who are online and those of you in here, have you ever committed yourself to God? Have you ever said, I'm done, I will be loyal to him and only him, and I'm going to figure out with the rest of my life what that looks like? If you haven't, today's the day to do it. Today is the day to recognize that someone has to atone, pay the price for your sin, your mistakes. There's no way you can be bought off. You can't buy off God. He has to pay the price for you. And it requires blood. It requires sacrifice. Just like the reason we have freedom in our country is because people sacrifice their blood so we could have freedom. It's the same in scripture. And if you don't know him, man, surrender to him today. And for those of us who are believers, can I just encourage you? If there are places in your life where you are not loyal to him, where you've given oaths and you've gone back, can I just tell you to deal with that, please? If you don't, God in his mercy will bring famines into your life. He will bring plagues. He will bring problems into your life until you're willing to deal with where you've broken your loyalty to him. And can I just tell you, he waits at the throne of grace for you to come. He is not like, you better come. He's waiting with open arms saying, I can take it. Come on. He's given us a body, a church, so that we can encourage one another and walk through what it means to become loyal to him and loyal to what he's called us to do. That's what we're supposed to do. That's what David did. And goodness gracious, if God can do it with David, I don't think any of you have committed adultery with somebody, had their husband killed. But But we're just as sinful. We just haven't had the opportunities to do that probably. Be loyal to God. And let that loyalty show up in the small things, in your schedule, in your finances, in the small parts of your life where you're going to declare my loyalty to God over my loyalty to whatever thing I love that gives me a sense of life or peace. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Lord, these are interesting times that we live in, but as we look in Scripture, they're no different than the times humans have lived in throughout human history. 
And so, Father, we come before you this morning and we thank you for your loyalty to us. For those that know you, you are loyal to your covenants. You are loyal to your glory. And once we come to know you, you have anointed us, you've put your Holy Spirit on us, and you are loyal to see it to the end, just like you were loyal to David once you anointed him to see his kingdom to the end. And Lord, I thank you that you're so loyal that one day you're going to come back from heaven to bring the kingship of David full circle because you're that loyal to your yes be yes and your no be no. Father, forgive us when we break that loyalty and let us know that that's exactly why you extend your grace and your sacrifice to us. It's because you know that we keep breaking the loyalty, but in your love and your grace and your mercy, you call us to yourself. And so, Father, I pray that we would keep these things close to our heart. Would we know your word? Would we walk through your word in a way that encourages and spurs us on to love and good deeds so we can spur others on to love and good deeds? May we speak about you like David would speak about you. May we tell other people about you. Would we serve people laying down our life, picking up our cross, knowing what that means that we're going to death, not looking to get life, but to give our life for others. Lord, help us to surrender to you, I pray. Amen.